and welcome once again to another exciting installment of Sky Mail, uh, the show where we take all the emotional gravitas of every episode and undermine it with jokes and goofs. Today's actually a little different, though. We have a very special guest with us today from the podcast Nightlight, a horror anthology series which showcases uh, some amazing talent from uh, Black writers. We have uh, Tanya Ransom. Hello. Tanya, if you want to introduce yourself better than I can. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, so I'm Tanya Ransom. I'm the creator and executive producer of Nightlight. Like you said, it is a horror anthology podcast that publishes work written by Black writers and it's performed by Black actors. Uh, we've been around for about two years now, so uh, it's pretty exciting. I'm pretty excited about it. Um, and we've got five stars on Apple Podcasts, so I guess we're doing something right. Yeah, I mean, I am unfortunately a pretty late comer to the uh, to the show, but I've got to say, it, it popped up in in Twitter, and I I'm a I'm a sucker for horror anthologies in general, so it was a pure blast to have something new to listen to, and it was there's just so much good stuff in it. Oh, thank you. So just. You know, kudos to to you and to to all of the writers and the performers and stuff like that. I'm I'm, I'm not completely caught up yet. I basically have been kind of doing a back and forth between like one backlog episode and then like new episode. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's okay. I mean, I wouldn't even necessarily say you're a late comer. Hopefully, we're going to be around for a really long time, and this is just the beginning of the journey. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the. Main thing that I just kind of wanted to do is just uh, to, to to reach out and to talk to some some figures in horror, uh, especially figures in horror that are not uh, unfortunately as represented as they should be. The I, I guess you know the the main thing that we were kind of kind of wanted to go over was just to, to to pick your brain a little bit. We've got some some serious questions. We've got some some goof questions as well uh, because we we cannot make it through a sky mail. Uh, completely serious. I, I think that there's actually some sort of uh, requirement <laughs> to where we we can't. Excellent. <laughs> you know, as a as a show that calls itself a, a horror show and tries to to do that. Uh, you know, our, our show is always interested in seeing how other people approach the horror genre. Ours is more usually from like a, a cosmic horror sort of bent, uh, and then infused with a little bit of the noir sensibility as well. One of the questions we actually have from one of the, the listeners was uh, from Megan, which said, uh, what made you start Nightlight? Oh, okay. So I'll try to make this as short as possible. Um, basically, I wanted to start a podcast before podcasts were even a thing. So um, way back before, I don't even know if iPods were like really out or if they were just coming out, but um, iTunes had just become a thing. And they had radio stations on iTunes and some of the radio stations that they had were old time radio stations. And I started listening to old time radio and I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Like, it would be great to, like, revive this as a thing. You know, people can tune in, you know, seven o'clock every Wednesday night or whatever to listen to a show. Um, and I wanted to revive that. But at the time, you know, again, podcasts didn't exist. And so I knew that I was going to have to work at the radio station. And that was so far outside of my comfort zone and what I was familiar with, because at the time I was a web developer. So I had no experience in media of any kind. 
Um, and as years went on, podcasts became a thing. And I was like, oh, this would be easier now because, you know, now there's podcasts. I can record this on my own. Um, but I kept saying, you know, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough time. Um, and finally, a couple of years ago, I realized I'm never going to have enough time. I just need to actually do it. Um, and a report came out from Fireside Fiction right around that same time. Um, that showed stats of writers that were published, not just in their uh, magazine, but across the board, you know, several magazines, um, or they actually took a survey of writers, I think it was, and they they found that something like two point something percent of fiction that was published was by black writers. Now in America, black people represent about 13% of the population. Um, so you know, there, there's huge discrepancy there between the amount of fiction that's published by black writers and the number of black writers that there likely are um, in America, at least. And so I wanted to create this place where black writers could submit their work and they wouldn't have to worry about it being rejected because it was too black or not black enough, because that was kind of like a follow up question in this survey that was, or at least uh, there was a conversation on Twitter. I don't know if it was actually part of the survey, um, but basically people were like, well, you know, why aren't black writers being published? And a bunch of black writers spoke up and said, well, you know, I've submitted my story to these places and I got feedback that it was too black, but then I sent it over here and they said it wasn't black enough. And so, um, you know, the, kind of the, the common theme through all of this was that black people were submitting their work to majority white editors and these white editors had their own idea of what black writers' stories should be about. And they weren't accepting work because it didn't meet whatever idea they had in their head of what it should be. Um, and so me being a black woman, I was like, well, you know, I'm not going to say your work is too black or not black enough. Like, I just want to know if it's a good story or not. I don't care, you know, if it's quote unquote black um, or not. If it is, that's great. If it's not, that's great too. Um, and so that's kind of why I started Nightlight. I, you know, I wanted to start a podcast and that's why I decided that I wanted to start a podcast that featured black writers. That's awesome to, to kind of go back to the, what inspired you. Uh, it, it's funny that you mentioned that actually, cause I remember, I remember my dad would, uh, he, he got the cassette tapes of old time radio broadcasts that you could get at the Cracker Barrel, actually, near where I lived. Oh, yeah. And we would listen to like old shadow recordings and stuff like that. That's that's kind of some of what led to, to my love of like film noir and stuff like that. So it's yeah. it's interesting how like people come to kind of the same conclusion from different angles and stuff like that. And how there's yeah. these, these common threads that that, you know, can can lead us to very similar ideas but at the same time there's so much personal experience in there as well that like mm -hmm. just makes for such an interesting mixture yeah yeah for me like i didn't even know old-time radio was a thing you know like i kind of heard like my great aunt talked about listening to radio shows and i'd heard people talk about listening to radio shows but I didn't really have a concept of what that sounded like until I actually heard it. But I did grow up watching a whole lot of um, old, quote unquote, uh, TV shows. Like I watched The Twilight Zone all the time. Um, oh, yes. I don't know if anybody listening is familiar with Nick at Night. I don't even know if that's still like a thing with Nickelodeon. But um, they used to show like all these old uh, shows on Nick at Night. So during the day, they would have like cartoons on Nickelodeon. And then, you know, after like seven or eight, when the little kids went to bed, they'd have like episodes of I Live Lucy and Mork and Mindy and Mary Tyler Moore show. Um, and so I kind of got hooked on these older shows like Twilight Zone and Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And I've always loved horror. So, of course, like I listened or I watched a lot of Twilight Zone 
And so when I found old time radio, especially like the show, The Whistler, that was one of my favorites in suspense. Um, and it, it was very Twilight Zone-esque. So I was super excited to find it. Did, did you ever watch uh, Night Gallery at all? No, I've heard it, but I've never actually watched it. Yeah, it's it's the kind of the, the follow up, the spiritual successor to Twilight Zone and other Rod Serling. And like, I love the conceit of it that there is this painting, you know, art gallery. Yeah, that each one of the paintings reflects one of the stories that they're going to tell and they, they showcase it and then they go into the story. It, it's there are a couple of famous ones from there, like the the Caterpillar, which is the one where the, the guy ends up spoilers <laughs> uh, getting an earwig in his in his head and he thinks that he's going to die. It comes out and then. The, the guy's like, oh, they only ever come out if they lay eggs. Oh. And he's just like, well, and he, that sucks. he, offs, him, he offs himself. So, well, I mean, but he was a bad person because he he hired someone to put the earwig in like a romantic rival's ear or something uh, like that. So ju- just desserts. Yeah. I'm going to have to check that out. Like, I've heard of it. I just, it, you know, I remember looking for it a few years ago, trying to find somewhere that I could watch it. And you know, It used to be on Hulu. I don't know if it still is or not, because oh, they did their whole, like, great purge where yeah. they got rid of so much good content behind a paywall. Yeah, I'm going to have to see if I can find it. It sounds super interesting. And, you know, I want to watch it. Um, Amazon Prime has this show. I think it's called Tales from the Dark Side. I might be messing that up. But um, that's also a really good show. Very, very Twilight Zone-esque, so to speak. And I think it's from the 80s. Um, but yeah, it's a good show. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, it's free on Prime. Uh, that actually that actually leads into um, kind of a, a question from uh, one of the, the cast members, uh, Amy, who plays uh, Daphne Howard. Um, what, in your opinion, are the keys to writing really great horror stories? Um, okay, so that's kind of a two-sided question a little bit because I think that what makes a good horror story for audio versus what makes a good horror story in general are kind of two different things. Um, For audio in particular, I think pacing is super, super important. Um, And I mean, that's also important to some degree, like in literature and in film as well. But with audio, people can't skim, they can't fast forward the way they can in other medium. I mean, you can, but it's, you can't really tell like where you are in the story, like how far forward you need to go there's no sort of visual cue that says oh okay we're through with this you know description of the room or whatever it is that you're trying to skip um so that's i think super important in audio fiction pacing is the the first thing that i always look for when i get a submission to nightlight if the pacing isn't good then i I don't accept that story and if the pacing is good but a story needs work i will accept a story that has great pacing but might need work in some other areas because pacing for me is the most important thing um but i think also with horror it's such a personal thing you know the thing that scares me may not be the same thing that scares you and so there are some things that are kind of universal in terms of things that scare us like children being in danger we're all kind of biologically hardwired to feel some sort of fear when a child or an animal even is in danger and so that type of horror i think is a little easier to write because it speaks to us in a more universal way. Um, Whereas the rest of it, I think, is more cultural. Like, is your audience American or is there Latin American? So I speak Spanish and to keep up with my Spanish, because I don't have a lot of people that I speak Spanish with, and it's um, a language that I've just recently picked up in the last few years, I watch a lot of horror 
films and TV shows that are in Spanish so that I don't lose my vocabulary. And one thing that I've learned is that in Latin America, religious horror is kind of king there, um, at least what makes it here. You know, I don't I don't know what might be on streaming services if I were to actually live in a Latin American country, you know, because there's, there's different availability based on where you are. But for the, the pattern that I see is that there's a lot of religious horror um, in Latin American countries. And, you know, a big part of that is because a lot of Latin American countries are Catholic and religion is such a huge component of the culture of that country. And I feel like in America, that's not necessarily the case. Like, yes, religion exists here, but it's less important to us as Americans um, than it is to someone in Latin America. Right. It's it, it's not a defining. Yeah, it's not a defining feature of being an American, despite what so, I mean, certain sectors of America might. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, think about it. So like, you know, back in the 70s, when The Exorcist came out, America was much more religious. And that was a terrifying movie for people because they were like, oh, my God, like I can be possessed. Whereas people watch it now and they're like, I mean, I guess it's, you know, kind of scary. Like there's some weird stuff in it. But, you know, they're not nearly as frightened of it now as people back when it first came out was. And it's just because our culture has changed so much. So I think that for horror to be successful, it has to speak to the culture of whatever your audience is. And that's not necessarily to say that if you were making horror for a Latin American audience that you should absolutely go with religion. That's not the only um, thing that can scare people in Latin America. It's just, you know, one example. But you have to think about the type of people that you're trying to scare, what it is that would scare them um, and sort of get into their head. And you have to make them feel for the main character, even if even if that character is, you know, a total jerk, you still have to make them concerned about their well-being. Like, you know, if this main character dies, even though they're a jerk, this kid is going to die, for instance. So we have to keep the jerk alive to keep the kid alive kind of thing. Um, so just you're making it so that people can relate to someone. And culture is such a big part of that, I think, that you know, horror is less universal than, say, like, romance, right? Yeah. Yeah, because uh, it's, it's interesting, uh, you know, talking about, like, the, the different cultures and that is, like, a window into horror. Mm -hmm. I remember in college I took a Russian folklore class, Ooh. and one of the things that the, uh, the teacher went over was, you know, the various spirits that exist in horror, uh, in, like, horror stories and stuff like that. One of them in particular was uh, about this... Uh, I'll try and synopsize it, but the old lady stays home while her family goes into town to go to church. Strike one right there. <laughs> she doesn't want to start the fire in the hearth because it's gone out. So she goes out to the drying barn, which they're using for their grains and stuff like that, and goes to cook on that. Family gets home, is like, where's grandma? And nobody can find her until the little boy... It's like, oh, there's grandma out by the fence posts. And uh, it's just her skin okay. uh, because like the spirits in Russian folklore, the further away you radiate from the home, from the hearth, mm -hmm. the more malicious, if not outright, at least capricious spirits become and stuff like that. Right. And it all kind of stems from this notion that like your family is the most nurturing thing that you'll ever have and the further you get away from that the more dangerous it right. is and yeah. this this is like a pre-industrial russian society especially yeah. so uh it 
but it was interesting seeing that as like a window into the stories and stuff and how that like shaped that or like other other spirits and things like that you know yeah malicious and so well yeah like if if you think about the twilight zone you know the things that were scary in america during the 60s was you know there was this big space race right so so many of the episodes have something to do with aliens right um and xenophobia you know there's this you know allegory of oh well you know are these people aliens or are they you know one of us kind of thing oh what yeah what what was what was the like the real famous one? I can't remember the name of it right now. Will the real Martian please stand up? I think is probably the one that you're thinking of. Um, but there, I mean, there are just so many. Um, there's also my favorite episode is the Invaders, um, which I am not going to spoil for people. But it is um, about this uh, alien spaceship that lands on this woman's house, and um, they're basically like terrorizing her, and she's fighting back. She's fighting back against these aliens and it's just it's such a great episode and i think everybody should watch it it's on netflix so if you have a netflix subscription go watch it nice well we'll break up these serious uh topics now with <laughs> right. uh, a dumb question sweet the uh our, our voice actor for uh, a character who doesn't have an official name yet and is only known as the uh name that a bunch of complete jerk arcane researchers refer to as the outsider uh, <laughs> Nice. Uh, writer has uh, asked, would you ever in good conscience consume beef fizz? I don't even know what that is. Beef, beef fizz is a running gag on here that unfortunately I started by uh, retweeting a horrible 1970s recipe that <gasps> I, I, I threatened myself oh. with uh, if, if we if we like met some sort of like major milestone that I would consume it. It is vile in every imaginable metric. <laughs> and it is two cans. Uh, granted, this is for six to eight servings. So, you know. Okay. Two cans of condensed beef broth. All right. One cup chilled ginger ale. All right. And two tablespoons of lemon juice. Combined ingredients and pour over ice in glasses. Ugh. I mean... I would for, you know, in exchange for something, you know, if somebody wanted to give me, you know, a thousand dollars or something. Hell yeah, I'll do it. Um, you know, if it's just for fun, no. So, so you're not so you're not just going to kick back by the kick back by the pool and uh, knock back a tall, frosty glass of beef. It's no, nah, it's a no from me, dog. <laughs> uh, all right. If we ever, if I ever one figure out what milestone I'm going to attribute that to, and two, we ever actually reach it, I'll let you know. Yeah. Uh, if it's, uh, I'll get, I'll give you firsthand the firsthand scoop on that one. Sweet. Uh, moving on. Uh, one one of the questions that uh, that I had was: Are there any tropes in like writing or or fiction in general? I suppose that you really enjoy, and then are there any that like you? could do perfectly fine never seeing ever again you know like it, with tropes for me it's all in how it's executed you know like a lot of people are like oh zombie stories are so done and over with and you know yes there are a lot of zombie stories out there and you know it's all just hey you know zombies are eating brains and people are killing each other and you know and that's kind of like the meat of the situation no pun intended there but <laughs> oh, I'm, I was, yeah, I'm glad you said that. I was going <laughs> to 
<laughs> you know, I wish I'd intended that. I should have said that that pun was intended. That would have sounded really awesome or sounded intelligent there. But um, no, I played myself. We'll fix it in post. Sweet. Okay. Editor's note. I did not fix this in post. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think that, like, there's this story that we have on Nightlight um, called South Central Rain that is a zombie story. And, you know, zombies are, you know, eating people's brains and it's, you know, this dystopian world where people don't trust one another. And, you know, on its face, it sounds like, oh, my God, another zombie story. Like, I'm so over this. But the characters are so well done and the way that it's executed is so different from a lot of the zombie stories that are out there that, you know, it it doesn't feel like a trope, if that makes sense. So, I mean, for me, it's all in the execution and how it's done there's nothing there's nothing under the sun that i would be like oh no i'll never publish a zombie story or i'll never publish a ghost story or anything like it's it's all in how it's executed by the writer okay actually bringing up zombie fiction does kind of bring up a a a subsequent question excellent horror has sort of a mixed bag history when it comes to depiction of people of different backgrounds Mm -hmm. uh which (laughs) Uh, as someone who enjoys cosmic horror, you know, H.P. Lovecraft, boy howdy, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> trash fire human. Oh yeah. Unfortunately, great writer. Terrible I love, human. Yeah, I I love a lot of the stuff that he wrote. Yeah. And then like I read stuff that wasn't the things that everybody points to. It's like, oh, this is his greatest stuff. And then I was like, wow, not only was he just like a grade A racist <laughs> for the time. Yeah. Yeah, like he was super racist for the time, which is a feat in and of itself. Yeah. It's almost impressive. You know? <laughs> like, how yeah. can you be like so racist that racists think that you're too racist? And, and uh, he he just had this like there were just so many different groups that he like belittled and looked down on. Uh as someone who comes from, you know, areas that are a little bit more rural and stuff like that, he there's one of his stories where he just like talks about this guy from the Catskill Mountains mm-hmm. and just talks about him as like this subhuman beast. Yeah. And like talks about how there's this this light in his eyes that he recognizes. And I'm just like, oh, OK, I mean, cool. <laughs> uh, I, I really appreciate that you're depicting all people that live like in mountains and, you know, in rural communities and stuff like that as just being like inbred backwoods hicks right um i love it i don't actually but uh (laughs) but it's it's frustrating yeah because you see that and then there are some things in horror that at least for the time indicated that there were efforts to try and be better Mm -hmm. as as much as you know looking at it i think from today uh it, it seems like a very short milestone the original night of the living dead Mm -hmm. having a black main character that you know survives basically to the end of the movie was not common at the time frame now granted you know like yeah comparing that to nowadays like the 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 amount of good faith that that garners yeah but i think that there's um Oh, there's so much that I could say about this. <laughs> um, oh, no, please, please do. Th- so Night of the Living Dead, the original, is one of my favorite movies. And, you know, the fact that he dies at the end and like not only does he die at the end, but he's killed by police, basically. Um, you know, like, I think 
So I, I have this theory that Get Out is in some sort of way, like the ending of Get Out is sort of like this homage to Night of the Living Dead. Um, just because, you know, like there's that last scene and, you know, it's the police car is driving up and, yeah, you know, I saw this in the theater and it's so it's so funny because like seeing it in the theater, you could tell where the black people in the theater were <laughs> because we were all like, oh, you know, I mean, even even, you know, I'm I am white as hell. And <laughs> I like I clinched. I was just like, yeah. oh, God. Oh, no. And like any any person that wants to tell me that, like, we live in a post racial society, but can watch that movie and know that, like, this is the part where where bad things are going to happen. Like, yeah, it, it, yeah. like I, you're, you're just being disingenuous with yourself. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. But I'm convinced that the end of Get Out was in some ways influenced by Night of the Living Dead. It was kind of a way, you know, and I, I don't know if this was intentional. It's, I mean, this is just my opinion. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But, you know, for me, what it meant to me was saying, you know, hey, there's this movie, Night of the Living Dead. This guy dies at the end. A cop kills him. We're totally expecting that to happen at the end of this movie in 2000. What was it? 14, 15, 16. I can't even remember what year it came out. Um, it's 2020. It seems like it's been like 17 years yeah. this year. Heck, since March seems like it's been 20 <laughs> right? years. Exactly. Exactly. So I have no idea when Get Out came out. Like, I mean, I could have been four at this point. I don't even know. Um, but for that to happen and then for him not to get killed at the end was kind of a way to say that we are making progress, but we haven't made enough progress that you didn't sit in your seat dreading what was going to happen next. 2017, by the way, I just looked it up. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so, so, I mean, that's what it was for me, you know, it's to call out that, hey, like this is still happening because people wouldn't have gotten tense about it if, you know, if, if this weren't happening, there would have been no reason for people to be like, oh my God, are we going to watch this guy get shot at the end? And this is how this is going to end. You know, there wouldn't have been that tension if the, the fact that, you know, black people get killed disproportionately by police you know, if that wasn't an issue, then there wouldn't be that tension there. So, you know, I think the ending was amazing because it called out the fact that, hey, there's still progress to be made. Like, yes, oh, yeah. we've come a little ways, um, but not nearly far enough. But I think another movie that for me kind of does the same thing that Night of the Living Dead does, because I, if I remember correctly, Night of the Living Dead, they didn't, you know, intentionally cast a black guy for um that lead role and you know there's rumors that they changed the end of it and you know nobody really knows if it was actually um changed once they actually cast um him for the lead role i cannot remember his name and i feel awful about that right now but um you know so there, there's there's this theory that they changed it but it, as far as i know um, george romero never like confirmed that he changed anything that it was you know kind of always written that way but there's this movie called the girl with all the gifts and it's based on a book of the same name in the book the main character the little girl she's white um and her name is melanie and the book opens up with even like an explanation that you know melanie comes from melanin which is you know which she basically says is ironic because she's white and you know she's not black she doesn't have you know a lot of melanin so why is her name melanie kind of thing um but 
there are a few things that are different between the book and the movie. And in the movie, the little girl is black. And there's this line that she says at the very end, which I think is super poignant. And she says, why should it be us who die for you? And I may not be getting that perfectly right, but that's the gist of it. And I think in the society we live in today, that was an especially powerful line. And again, like, I don't know if after they cast this actress for the role and they, you know, said, hey, we have a black girl here. You know, we can we can do something a little different with some of these lines. I don't know if they did that intentionally or not, but just the way that that movie ended, because it ended the same way that the book ended. It's just some of the lines that were spoken were super meaningful coming out of a black actress's mouth versus a white actress's mouth. So right. I highly recommend watching that movie and reading that book. Okay. Uh, also, Dwayne Jones. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. I didn't want to interrupt you because you were making a very compelling point there. Uh, but I also wanted to make sure that he got credit for that because, like, been been yes. in that seriously, I don't know, just, like, did such a good job. Like, as much as I love quoting, like, the famous lines, like, they're coming for you, Barbara. Like, yeah. <laughs> every moment in Night of the Living Dead that, like, really resonates is, like, really him just, like, I'm going to make it through this. Yeah. Yeah. And inviting. And then the way the people that are in the house with him are treating him, you know, because if he had been a white guy, there wouldn't have been nearly as much questioning. Oh, no. Um, as there was. And, you know, again, maybe the script was always written that way. And if that character had been, um, if they had cast a white actor for that character, they would have still, you know, questioned him in the same way, you know, for the purposes of the movie. But it was just so much more powerful. Yeah. There, there's so much more resonance from it because yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Oh, I don't think I ever actually got to the question that I was getting at with uh, <laughs> the the talking about H.P. Lovecraft being just complete garbage. There, there are definitely, it seems like, certain subgenres of horror that do better. Um, mm -hmm. And I think I think one of the things that, at least here at Blake Sky Private Eye, we try to do is we try to take the things that we love about unfortunately problematic subgenres and, like, fix them and make them better. Yeah. Yeah. One of the key focuses, at least for us, is uh, LGBTQ uh, IA representation. Uh, we have a lot of cast members uh, and a lot of the roles as well. We, we, we feel like is important. Yeah. Um, but with regard to cosmic horror, especially, there's just this like deep seated history of like racism in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And sexism as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I guess I guess my question would be how, at least in your opinion, and I don't mean to make this like a like a task for you, but what do you think that people can do as writers or as people that engage with cosmic horror to keep some of the, the things that it does great, which is, you know, that that unnerving existential fear, but like doesn't lean into that really blatant Ickies. like expression of xenophobia <laughs> yeah. and like fearing the other as like an other as like a group of people. Yeah. I think um, actually um, Sheree Priest does an excellent job of this in, oh, and I can't remember which order the books. I think, um, I think Maplecroft is the first book. So it's basically like um, a Cthulhu type legend, but there's also Lizzie Borden in it. And like the whole premise is that she killed her parents 
um, because they were basically being um, controlled by Cthulhu. Um, just to like super simplify the plot there. I'm sorry if you're listening, Sherry, and I didn't quite get it right. It's been a while since I read it. But um, but she does such an excellent job of basically reimagining what um, Cthulhu is and, you know, what it's all about. And she mashes it up with this Lizzie Borden thing, which I think is the coolest thing in the world. Um, and it, I mean, there, there's two books. There's Maplecroft and I think Chapelwood. Uh, I can't remember for sure. Um, but she does a great job of that. Um, Victor Laval wrote, I think it was The Ballad of Black Tom. Oh, yes. That's also yes. based on Lovecraft. And I think that, you know, letting some of these writers that come from marginalized backgrounds, that come from back that come from backgrounds that Lovecraft would have, you know, absolutely hated, you know, rewriting and reimagining some of his stories, I think is the best way to sort of honor Lovecraft's contribution to literature because, you know, he did make amazing contributions to literature. He's a trash human being, but... But he's a talented trash human being. Yes, exactly. And, you know, it it sucks that he was a trash human being, but I think that making him roll over in his grave is the best way to... Um, sort of pay homage to some of the things that he contributed to literature in general while also kind of, you know, giving him the finger for being a trash human being. Yeah, that's a good point. Also, yeah, the um, I'm trying to remember which story it is that the, the Ballad of Black Tom is based I think it's uh, the Red Hook. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I'm pretty sure that's his. Yeah, that's a, that, that, I, think that, I think that's a really good tip. It's just like taking the best of it that you can but like not not glossing over it because i know a lot of people and before i really did a lot of research into lovecraft like in high school you know i was like oh yeah he's a cool dude yeah. and then i was like <laughs> and then you found out what his cat's name was, <laughs> was like, yeah, oh, yeah. um yeah and and then you know like i tried to uh, i i am ashamed to say it but i feel like for you know earnestness uh, I was one of those people that was like, oh, well, he's like a racist, but everybody was racist back then. And then, like, I continued to, like, try to be a better human. And I was like, oh, no, he's <laughs> he's just literally yeah, the like worst. He's super racist. <laughs> not, not, not that even not that even the time frame excuses. Yeah. An actual excuse. Yeah, it's not. But yeah. But to be that terrible that, you know, even by that time standards, you still were a trash human being. You have to be pretty awful. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, you know, for me, and I think, you know, a lot, a lot of people from marginalized groups would probably disagree with me on this. Um, but I do think that it's important in some ways that we acknowledge the contribution that he made. Like we can, we can say he was a good writer and also say he was a trash human being, um, you know, especially because like he's not making any money from anything. That he's Hell yeah. Anymore. Like it's all in the public domain. You know, if he was still making money from it, then that would be, you know, one thing. You know, if we we're talking about, you know, someone, you know, like all this, um, you know, like the whole Me Too movement and all these filmmakers who are, you know, kind of getting called out like, yes, let's stop watching their movies so that they're not making any money off of being trash human beings. But, you know, Lovecraft has been dead for forever. His stuff is in the public domain. He's not making any money off of this. So, you know, I don't see any harm in acknowledging his contributions 
to literature and then, you know, taking those contributions and making them better by taking all the racism out of it. Yeah, if only we had fair and just copyright laws, too, that would allow stuff to enter the public domain in a reasonable time frame. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, if, <laughs> you know, or if, you know, somebody gets, you know, convicted of, you know, some horrible crime. Well, you don't own your stuff anymore. Sorry. That's how it works, I think. Oh, man, that's <laughs> I like. Uh. All right. Well, <laughs> if, I, if I ever decide to run for public office, I have a new platform now. There you go. There I'll, I'll go. give you I'll give you full credit for that. <laughs> Sweet. I appreciate it. Thank you. So go, go, go to a more goof question again now that uh, we've had couple serious ones and again uh can never be too serious on a mailbag uh i I love it let's go one one of the things that we have uh here at blake sky is the the concept of the noir sona which is you know the the fans and particularly like uh i write noir sona kind of case files for some of our patrons and stuff as well where it's just kind of your avatar in a in the in the in the city Mm-hmm. that the the story takes place in. So I, I was curious, what would your noir sona be? Like what 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 kind of I don't I don't want to be too cliche about it and be like, you know, the because we, we've got some pretty out there ones as well. The, I mean, the main kind of criteria is just something that could exist in the amorphous time frame of like the 1920s to 30s. Yeah. And can have elements of the supernatural and or organized crime, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, okay. So this is going to make me sound like a really bad person. I promise I'm not a bad person. I'm not a criminal. Um, but I'm always fascinated by women especially who um, sort of pretend to be innocent. And, you know, it turns out they're really like the mob boss kind of thing. So. Oh, um, oh, 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 man. Uh, I'm trying to think. I was actually... This, this is no indication of things to come. Don't pay any attention to what I'm saying right now. But I was maybe looking at criminal organizations that existed in the 1930s uh, in New York. Yeah. And I cannot remember her name, but there was like a woman that basically ran like an entire criminal organization. But, uh, now I have to look it up. I have to look it up because this is going to bug me. <laughs> Yeah, because I got to know, too. But I'm always, like, so fascinated by these women who, you know, and in a lot of cases, it was their husbands that kind of started things and their husbands got, you know, killed or died or, you know, whatever the case may be. And they were like, well, hey, this is a lucrative operation. I'm not going to let it just, you know, fall to the side. Like, I'm going to take over for this. You know, some of them are, you know, definitely self-made. I don't want to, you know, make it sound like a woman can't be a crime boss, you know, unless she's following in the footsteps of her man. That's, you know, definitely not what I'm saying. But... I'm always fascinated by those particular stories. And I think like if I were to embody some persona, it would definitely be that. And plus, like because I do voice acting, I really enjoy playing villains like that's my favorite role to play is just, you know, some sort of really bad person or monster. I just think it's so much fun to play the bad guy, so to speak. Um, So, yeah, that that would be the the noir sona that I would pick. One, you're, you're in good company. Uh, there are numerous, numerous noir sonas <laughs> that are of the criminal bent. I mean, we have uh, our very own uh, Rockefeller of crime and Mickey O'Shea as a cast member. But uh, God, now this is going to bug me. Not re- not the one that I was looking for, but there was, well, I apologize if I am butchering the pronunciation of this, but uh, Tai Yu, who was the wife of Sai Wing Mok, who was the leader of the uh, Hip Sing Tong in Chinatown in New York around that time frame. 
basically while he was in prison, mm-hmm. uh, she took over the operation of the uh, Hip Sing Tong. Yeah. I want to say John Dillinger's like girlfriend or wife kind of did the same thing. I don't know if it was like after he died or if he, I, I can't remember. I just vaguely remember um, some woman in his life taking over part of the work that he had been doing um, when he couldn't do it anymore. Okay. I, I, I found, I found, I found, Yay! It. found the one that I was looking for, which is uh, Stephanie St. Clair, who, Ooh, that's even a good name. Uh, she was uh, a gambler who ran a notorious criminal enterprise in Harlem, New York at the early part of the 20th century. Uh, nice. She resisted the interests of the mafia for several years after prohibition ended and continued to be an independent operator and never came under mafia control. She ran a successful number of games in Harlem and was an activist for the black community. Her nicknames include Queenie, Madam Queen, Madam St. Clair, and Queen of Policy Rackets. I love her. <laughs> yeah, she, like, I, again, not related to anything. Don't read into this. Uh, but I was looking over, like, various criminal organizations to see what sort of operators there were. And, you know, I mean, there's the cliche ones, the Italian Mafia, the Irish yeah. Mafia. Uh, I was, like, surprised to find out what major cities have Greek mafias at that time frame. But, oh, uh, yeah, I hadn't never thought about that. Uh, most, mostly in Philadelphia. Huh. Anyway, uh, yeah, so I, I, I read about uh, Stephanie St. Clair, and I'm just like, oh, she is awesome. And and again, like, yeah. just, just like with so many of the, the communities at this time frame that are, you know, branded as criminals, a lot of it was really more about, like, protecting the interests of that community from outside. Yeah. Uh, as well as like, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say that everything that, you know, people like, uh, I know that uh, uh, Wing Mock definitely did some stuff that was uh, <laughs> extreme to say yeah. the least. But I mean, at the same time, a lot of these, uh, a lot of these organizations did things and had community services that they weren't getting from you know yeah like the crips and the bloods like you know a modern day example like you know that you know you know obviously there's a whole lot of you know shady stuff that goes on um you know with gangs in general but you know the bloods and the crips were started as more like here's how we protect our community because we don't have access to these services and the protection that other communities have so we have to do it ourselves and then it you know kind of morphs into something else because you know people get power hungry and whatnot, but you know, so many of these criminal organizations do start off as basically community helpers, and then just kind of gets out of hand because <laughs> the wrong people kind of fall into power. All right, so uh, we're locking it in. Your noir sona is the unassuming crime boss uh, operating yeah, behind the veil. Sure. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Locking, locking right. that in right now. Part of the historical uh, record now. I can't take it back. Let's see what. <laughs> yep, it's it's canon. I, I've I, it, like all all, right. all noir sonas are canon. Uh, it's just what it's just whether or not they <laughs> uh, they get much screen time. <laughs> all right, and let's see. I've got. I think there's two more uh, listener questions, so I'll go. I'll go over those. Uh, I got one from Janice, which was. What was the scariest story that you ever read? And if it is by a black author, uh, is it or will it be featured on the podcast? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I'm going to be honest. I am super hard to scare. 
Um, I've only read one thing that actually made me think about whether or not I wanted to keep my lights on. Um, and it was, it's, it was actually a novel by, oh God, Alexandra Sokoloff, I think is her name, called The Harrowing. And I'm a sucker for ghost stories, so it's a ghost story. Um, and it's basically like these college students, they might be high school students. It's like a private institution of some sort. So a college or, you know, private uh, high school kind of thing. And of course, you know, there's this legend um, that somebody killed themselves there, murdered someone else. I can't remember exactly what the legend was, but the place is haunted. Right. Um, and so that was kind of that. That was the only one that kind of made me be like, eh, I don't know if I want to like turn my lights off tonight, you know, because I kept hearing like, you know, the noises that you always hear. But, you know, you read something like that and then you hear a noise and you're like, oh, well, you know, is that like actually a ghost? Because I do believe in ghosts like I've had, you know, so many experiences in my life that I cannot think of another way to explain. Um, so, you know, for me, ghost stories tend to be closer to scaring me than anything else. Um, aside from that, if you really want to know like what actually has scared me in the past is films really scare me. Um, Japanese films in particular. And even then, like I'm still not like super scared or anything, but um, you know, things like the grudge and the ring and things like that, you know, like I've, I've had nightmares about them after I've watched them and been like, yeah, I don't know if I want the lights to be completely off. <laughs> I don't know if I want it to be completely dark in here um, while I'm here watching it alone kind of thing. Yeah, I can definitely feel you on the, the for, for me, it wasn't so much uh, the movie of it, but uh, Junji Ito, uh, Uzumaki definitely was one of the ones that really hit me as like a creepy and like, I, I, I think I'm kind of in the same boat as you where I don't get scared, scared by stuff. I'm like, oh, that's a really well executed element of horror and I appreciate it as an aesthetic yeah exactly I, th I think that's part of it is because I'm a writer I'm constantly like dissecting the story and so it's super hard for me to get to a place where I'm actually afraid because as soon as I start to feel a little bit afraid I'm like oh wait why, why did that make me feel a little scared like the haunting of hill house there's a couple of scenes in it like there's one um where that really tall guy is going to get his hat from Luke and like that that seriously creeped me out and at the time like I was in bed watching it and I had my curtains open and the patio roof kind of like cut it didn't cut through the window but like the window was kind of like cut in thirds um so you could see like the sky and then like underneath it you could see like the patio and like as I was watching that scene this raccoon runs across the roof of my patio and so like I'm sitting there in the dark like watching this scene and you know I'm kind of creeped out you know thinking like oh wow this is a really good scene and then this raccoon runs across the roof and like the the raccoon legit scared me because <laughs> you know, I wasn't expecting that and I was already kind of like you know in a place I was like oh you know I, I feel kind of creepy right now it's a 40 experience uh all all, all, yeah. all further screenings will have raccoons that frighten frighten the viewer from now on yeah Mike Flanagan did you hear that that's what I expect in the next season <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh speaking of Mike Flanagan is an amazing director like his movies are some of my favorite I think Hush um, was really well done. I wasn't necessarily scared in that movie, but there was so much tension in that movie. Like the entire time I was just like 
super tense. Um, and for those of you who don't know what the movie's about, it's basically there's this deaf woman and there's this guy that's trying to like break into her house and kill her. And so like she's having to fend off this attacker that she can't hear coming to her. Um, so, you know, like he's in the house and he's sneaking around. He's outside the house and he's sneaking around and she can't hear anything. And so she doesn't know where he is like at any point unless she can see him. Um, and so it was just like super tense the entire time. I think that was probably one of the one of the films that affected me most emotionally was that one. For the other question, I think we've got one more here. Uh, it's from Tommy. And it says, uh, do you think that equity writers are a valuable strategy in increasing author diversity in horror uh, and horror podcasting? Um, I guess it depends on what you mean by equity writers. I don't know if I'm, I'm going to assume that you mean making sure that you have representation of a certain group of writers in a writer's room or, you know, a publisher's making sure that they publish work by black authors or whatever. Um, I think that it's important to have that representation and it's not necessarily just because it's good for people to see themselves in literature and film and, you know, see people succeed, you know, like seeing yourself as president, right? Like, you know, little black kids, like I grew up, you know, thinking like there was no way that I could ever be president. Like I'm a black woman. There's no way that I could ever be president. Um, and then Barack Obama became president. And, you know, I, I don't want to be president, never have wanted to be president. But, you know, at this point, it feels like, OK, well, you know, maybe this is kind of a possibility. Like if that's something I ever wanted to do. I feel like it's in the realm of possibility in my lifetime. And I think it's important that those opportunities exist because it changes the future landscape of art. Um, but I also think that we often forget that, especially, you know, I hate this term mainstream, but there's really not a better term for it right now that I can think of. But, you know, there's this sort of, you know, mainstream art, you know, mainstream horror and a lot of times it just doesn't affect people from marginalized groups the way it affects people who are kind of, you know, the standard, you know, white American um, Protestant group of people. Right. Um, you know, like I remember growing up watching horror movies and, you know, I see this blonde white girl run up the stairs and I'm, you know, screaming at the TV like, why are you running up the stairs? Why? You can't escape that way. And, you know, I mean, there's and you hear that from black people all the time, you know, black people are like, nope, this never would have been a movie because we would have moved out right then as soon just, as we heard. Just, just got out. <laughs> you right? know, just. it's just, you know, like some marginalized groups just can't relate to stories that are written by these groups of people who have lived different experiences right. than them. And I think it's important to have a diverse body of horror and, you know, really any kind of art, but since we're talking about horror, I think it's important to have a diverse kind of horror that people can connect with and enjoy. Because, you know, I'll be honest, like I didn't really watch a horror movie and feel like I could have been a character in it until I saw Get Out. Not not only is it, I think, important to have people be able to see themselves in the the media that they can that they are able to take in. But 
I think that it's important to take in media that isn't you as well. Oh, and, absolutely. And I mean, you know, the, the unfortunate fact of the matter is that that is a very one-sided street right now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But like, j- just speaking from my own personal experience, uh, I grew up in a very, uh, one, ethnically homogenous uh, small town in the middle of Kentucky. Good times. <laughs> and I grew up, and I yeah, and I and I and I grew up in a place that uh, was a very conservative Christian, and that was the environment that I lived in for up until I was eighteen, and really didn't get like super far away from from until I was uh, twenty three. the The things that I took in were very much that sort of mindset and it wasn't until really like in college that I started taking in things that challenged a lot of the assumptions that I had and a lot of the things that I was raised with and I mean I'm not saying that you know I I burned down everything that I ever believed in before but uh but there's definitely some like viewpoints uh that weren't represented in my in my childhood uh oh yeah again Me I, I don't, too. I, like yeah and i don't and i don't want to harp on uh but like um i mean a, a lot of like when it comes to like sexuality and stuff like that um i you know only then got to see that like you know for for lack of a better way to put it that like gay and bi and trans people were not this hegemonic other and I mean, it It wasn't until, like, th- that, until I wasn't, like, made to believe, to, to, I mean, for lack of a better way to put it, to be a person meant that you had to, like, fit into this narrow mold and everybody else is, like, yeah. a character. Exactly, and then when you, like, consume art written by and produced by people from these other backgrounds, you start to see... You start to see people you didn't see as people as people. And sometimes you see yourself in it as well. Like, you you see one, like, with that, I saw somebody that, you know, wasn't a a straight person. And I'm like, oh, that's me. Or uh, with regard to, you know, people that are from different backgrounds and things like that. I see commonality or I see the differences and I understand the differences and there's context to it. And it's not this like unbridgeable gulf that. Yeah. And I I don't know. I'm rambling a bit, but I guess my point is that I feel like people are always asking with, I think, questions like this, you know, whether Mm -hmm. it's important specifically for minority communities and it is but i think it's just as important for non-minority communities as well to be exposed to that absolutely absolutely um you know like so if if you've ever seen the documentary on shutter horror noir um you're familiar with the birth of a nation Mm -hmm. which was kind of like this you know first movie so to speak that you know, really gain traction. Like it was shown in the white house and it depicted black people as savages basically. And you know, that for better or worse, you know, it fueled a whole lot of racism, you know, obviously like racism existed during that time, you know, people didn't need any help being racist. Um, but it 
sort of reinforces that worldview that, you know, black people are lazy or black people are this or, you know, whatever. And it, it just made it worse. And, you know, people that didn't necessarily believe that but hadn't come into contact with an actual black person, this is their only contact with a black person is through film. You know, of course, they're going to start to believe that this is how these people really are. And, um, you know, I think art can do a lot of damage to groups. And I think, you know, even, even if you're super well-intentioned, like for instance, like I'm, I'm heterosexual. I do not write, I do not write a lot of gay characters. I do have gay characters in my stories, but they're never my main characters. And it's not because I don't think that gay people should, you know, be, I think gay people should definitely be main characters. I just feel like I can't do it justice. That's not my experience. I don't understand it. And I feel like I could potentially do more harm than good. Right. Um, and I'm not willing to go down that road of potentially causing harm to a community. I would rather stick to writing black characters because that's my experience. I know that I can write black characters without doing harm to the black community. And if I wanted to write a story with a gay main character, then I would have a co-writer who was gay. Um or, you know, same thing with, you know, trans or, you know, whatever, you know, insert minority group here, you know, Muslim group. Like I'm I'm not a part of any of those groups. I am a black American woman who is generally non-religious, but spiritual. So I there are a whole bunch of experiences that I know that I can't do justice to. And so I'm not going to write them because I'm fearful that I might actually do harm to that community, no matter how much research I try to do, I would absolutely bring in someone who was part of that community to make sure that I wasn't doing harm to that community. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's really important. I, th I know personally that kind of from the opposite vantage point, uh, I am hesitant, apprehensive, I guess, because I, I don't want to misrepresent people of different ethnicities and stuff like that. Yeah. And I, any time that I have had characters in, in other writing, not so much in Blake Sky, that have fallen into those categories, I try and be respectful and I try and, like, find sensitivity readers and try and find yeah. that I'm like, hey, you know, I want to make sure that I'm respectful, that I'm not caught, you know, like you said, yeah. you don't, you, you don't want to paint a world that doesn't have these other groups in them, but at the same time, you don't want to make them into a flat depiction. And that's a very hard line to, to walk. Yeah. And it takes work. And I think a lot of people are just not willing to do the work. Like I was at a writer's conference, I guess it was probably six or seven years ago. And I was in the audience. I wasn't even speaking at conferences at this point, but it was, um, it was a panel basically about how to write from experiences that aren't your own. And there was this woman in the audience that raised her hand and she's like, I'm writing a fiction novel about um, feudal Japan, I think it was. And she was like, you know, those people are no longer alive. You know, why do I have to do the research or, you know, talk to a Japanese person to make sure that I'm depicting them properly? And the panel was made up of all white people, um, you know, which <laughs> <laughs> we will, we'll, we'll, we'll We'll just skip past that part. But, you know, basically they weren't qualified to answer the question. 
properly. But you know, I'm sitting there and I'm not, I was like, I'm not gonna say anything. I'm not gonna say anything. I'm not gonna say anything. And these panelists were just like, they were struggling to try to explain to this woman because they knew that she needed to do the research. They knew enough to know that, but they couldn't articulate it. And finally, after watching them struggle and, you know, she's arguing with them, you know, like everything they said, like she's got to come back for it. Mm. And, you know, finally, I just like raised my hand and I was like, oh, Jesus, help me. And I said, okay, look, I am black. People write stories all the time about slaves in America. And I can't tell you how many times I have read a book, a textbook even, about my ancestors depicted in a way that has caused harm to me today. And like, she just looked at me like I grew another head. And like, she came up to me afterwards and she was like, no, I don't think you understand. Like these people aren't alive anymore, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, you know, like at that point I realized like she, she was not ready to hear. She has an answer she wants to hear. Yes, exactly. And she wasn't ready to hear the answer that people who are experts, because unfortunately there was, you know, no one that was actually Japanese um, that was either in the audience and willing to speak up or on that panel um, to talk to her. And so, you know, she just dismissed everything everybody said because nobody was Japanese. And so therefore, you know, she had the right answer um, to her question. You know, like, honestly, I don't know why she even went to that panel if, (laughs) you know, if, if she'd already made up her mind that, it was okay for her to write this thing and not do any research and not worry about what modern day Japanese people might think of it. But yeah, I want to, I want to say that she was just literally looking for the okay on it, but yeah, she was and she didn't get it. And so she fought and, you know, I was like, I'm not going to sit here and waste time with her. And I was like, you know, I don't know what to tell you. Like, I, I know what to tell you from my experience. If you were writing about slaves, I would want you to consult somebody like me. I'm not Japanese, you know, do what you want to do. And I don't know if she ever published it, but I imagine if she did, it was probably a super bad novel (laughs) and it didn't go anywhere. And she probably blamed it all on the fact that she was white and white people aren't allowed to write Japanese people or, you know, whatever the case may be. Well, you know what? Official stance of Blake Sky Private Eye. We're dunking on whatever that lady's book is or novella or <laughs> screenplay, whatever. Yeah. It sucks. Yeah, totally. Official stance. That, that's canon. <laughs> yeah, totally. But I think, you know, the thing is, you know, a lot of people ask this question about, you know, well, you know, why should we have, and, you know, I'm not saying that this is what um, the person who submitted this question is trying to say. I, I don't want to put any words in anybody's mouth, but, right, you know, right. it kind of reminds me of this whole, like, well, you know, why should we have a token black person or a token, you know, queer person or, you know, whatever, you know, marginalized group, Um, in a writer's room for a TV show or, you know, why should we only have, you know, black people writing black characters or whatever. And it's like, nobody is saying that. Um, Nobody is saying that we need to have token people in writer's rooms. Like if you are a sucky writer, then it doesn't matter if you're black or not, then you shouldn't be in the writer's room because there are plenty of talented black people that can be in that writer's room. You shouldn't sacrifice someone you shouldn't sacrifice expertise just to have someone put their butt in a seat and have them check this box of i'm black or you know whatever the case and that's that's the false dichotomy that's presented and that's what pisses me off yeah and it it presumes that there are no talented people in those groups and that's the part that pisses me off it's like oh well you know a token black person what do you assume that there are no black people who are talented enough to be in that room and obviously there are there are so many people it's just that they are often overlooked for the opportunities and the reason you know especially hollywood is you know so white is because other groups have been shut out of these rooms for so long and people presume that people have been 
these other groups have been shut out of these rooms because they don't have the talent to be in those rooms. And that's not the case at all. It's that Hollywood is a who you know kind of industry. And unfortunately, segregation is still a major thing here in America. Like, yes, we all go to the same schools and, you know, schools are integrated and, you know, we can all go to the same grocery stores and restaurants and things like that. But if you think about most people, their group of friends looks just like them if they're white. Um, You know, that's not the case for marginalized groups because they're just like, we have to navigate this world that is majority white. And, you know, it may not be that way you know, for long, because, you know, the demographic makeup of America, at least, is changing. But the fact is, is that white people generally segregate themselves from other groups of people. Straight people segregate themselves from homosexual people. Um, so it, it's, that that's just how it is. You know, like, I I have some gay friends, but most of my friends are straight. And that's just, you know, how it is. I'm straight. And so, like, I tend to gravitate more towards straight people. It doesn't mean that I don't like queer people. It just means that that's just kind of the makeup of my world. And until you start to make friends with people in these other groups, your friend group is going to be homogenous. You have to actually work to make your friend group more diverse. And in Hollywood, that kind of translates into Hollywood being homogenous because people aren't reaching out and trying to diversify the groups of people that they know. Yeah. End rant. No, no, no. Like <laughs> it, it, it's not a rant. It's uh it's it's something that needs to be said. <laughs> yeah. The gospel. Yeah. End gospel. Was, there we go. <laughs> uh, I would I would have also accepted sermon. I like that, yeah. Ooh, yeah. Let's let's go with that. Sermon's good, yeah. So uh I, th- I think we'll probably call it there. Um, okay. Thank you so much again for agreeing to do this. This was a blast. It was my pleasure. I am again just so glad that I found your all's podcast. I think of the ones that I've listened to so far, and the, you know, obviously subject to change upon finding more amazing things. But the the ones that I have enjoyed the most, I enjoyed Wilson's Pawn and Loan. Yeah, because that's that, one of my favorites. That just that just had like a classic. Twilight Zone feel to it yes. to me. Yes, exactly. When I read it, that's what I thought. And I was like, I need this story because it is so Twilight Zone. And that's what I was going for. So, and yeah. uh, I, I may be butchering the name. Forgive forgive me. Uh, but it was, uh, I think it was the Tango of the Telltale Heart. Uh-huh. Which I just. Uh, is that Samiko Salsud? I, I believe so. Yes. Yes, it is. All right. Yes. But yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed that one. Uh, I am a sucker for like cross-cultural pollination and horror and stuff like that hellboy i think was one of my favorite stories ever yeah there's so much of like the like taking different traditions of folklore and mythology and horror and weaving them together and i felt like that that story did that so well with yeah, uh, the the hellhounds, the uh, what is it, the Kunanun, uh, mm-hmm. and okay. all that. Uh, I was like, and, and just the the complexity of it. Like I, I'm gonna I'm gonna out myself as a complete jerk because I thought <laughs> listening to it that it initially felt like it was gonna be kind of flat. Yeah, uh, and that it was just gonna be like a horrible person and like a revenge story. Right. But there's so much more depth to it. Yeah. There's so much more like the loss of self and a cycle of revenge and uh and 
yeah. the loss of self in like a, a system of aggression and violence too. Yeah. And it, I, I don't know, it really spoke to me and it was really well written and well performed. So. Oh yeah. Sheree is amazing. She's, um, she's such a great actress. I am so thankful <laughs> to have found her and like, I almost want to use her for like every single episode that we have. Cause she's just so great. Like, I mean, her voice is not always, you know, perfect. So it's, you know, and I also want to give like lots of people opportunities and, you know, like she's obviously not the only voice actor we have, but like, she's just so amazing. And like, I know that one day she's going to get discovered by somebody and she's not going to have time to do my little podcast anymore. And I'm going to be so sad. So I'm hoping like my podcast gets really big. So <laughs> wait, when she gets really big, like I can still hire her. Th- yeah. Throw th- 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 that cloud around. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, but uh, yeah, so everybody everybody at home, uh, if you are not listening to Nightlight, uh, you should have, well, not stopped listening to this immediately because uh, you wouldn't have heard all of this great uh, Q&A. But definitely after this, go listen to it. Go listen to go listen to three episodes, four episodes, five episodes tonight. All right. Is, is there anything else that you would like to uh, to plug, to say? Uh, usually towards the end, we, we either plug stuff or put stuff out into the into the world to pray to whatever eldritch horrors <laughs> that exist yeah. uh that you know people stop being horrible right um well i have a live show that i do every friday at 9 p.m eastern called the curious and macabre where i just talk about like weird creepy things that i think of um this last week i talked about the science of werewolves so basically like how the biology of werewolves would work if they were real like how um how rapid healing would work in them why silver kills them how they transform all of that kind of stuff like a biological basis for it and comparing them to examples that actually exist in the world nice that honestly honestly that, that sounds super interesting <laughs> i actually gave a talk um last year at multiverse about it so it's kind of like this repurposed thing um that i decided to do i'm working on an episode about shadow people right now that'll probably be a couple weeks um from the day that we're recording this um but yeah just i mean just weird creepy stuff because i like weird creepy things so um but yeah it's a live show so people can watch it live they can ask me questions live all that good stuff awesome oh before i forget i did make a promise i need to to follow through on uh so uh, so, some of you might know from twitter but uh the our voice actor for uh eleanor kostansky Gabby um, had some medical issues recently. She was in the, the hospital for a bit. She she's out. She's doing better. She's recuperating. She she put out some stuff, looking for some guidance with uh, regard to recovery and stuff. And uh, so some of you have been real wonderful retweeting and you know providing guidance and stuff. So I just wanted to follow through on my promise and give you a special shout out. Uh, James, Nicole, Tucker, Amy, Nate, Ryder, Gray King. Red Cerise and uh, let's see, Sword Games Inky. All of you are amazing, and as a personal favor to me, uh, for a friend, I appreciate everything. So thank you. Yeah, they sound like awesome people. Well, again, thank you so much for doing this. And if you ever feel the urge to, you know, come do occult crimes and whatnot, uh, you know where to stop by. Absolutely. And it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that about wraps it up. Everybody, uh, you know, stay safe, 
wear a mask, treat each other with kindness, dignity, and respect. Black Lives Matter, trans rights are human rights, and I don't think I have any more maxims that are true that I can spout at this time. So have a great one. Bye. <laughs>